0: Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams, and you're listening to I Am Royalty Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Alex Piccaro. Picero. Pic- Dr. Alex Picero. And I will tell you his list of accomplishments and accolades is inhuman. So well, I'm going to give you just kind of a few, a few of the highlights. He is a professor of criminology at the University of Texas, Dallas. He is has published over four hundred peer-reviewed uh, papers books, book chapters. He at some point he served for Attorney General Eric Holder, mm-hmm. and we'll talk more about that in detail. Sure. And he is ranked as the number one criminologist on the planet.
1: That's correct. That's correct. That
0: is correct. <laughs> All right, Dr. Piccaro, I'll go Alex from this point on. Great. Uh, thank you for taking time out to come be with us today on Race, Violence, and Medicine. Pleasure to be here, Brian. So I want to give you an opportunity to uh, introduce yourself to sure. our audience.
1: I'll give you a real quick uh, background of my life. Um, so in many ways, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here, in, in, in literally and figuratively. Um, my mom and dad uh, were teenagers in Havana, Cuba. Uh, and then when Fidel Castro took power, my dad was a pro baseball player um my dad took a long boat ride before there was carnival cruise lines and norwegians (laughs) to bilbao spain my mom took a pan am airplane uh to miami beach the miami beach of the 1960s not our miami beach right um and there was no south beach back then um and uh so she got a greyhound uh bus ticket and a few dollars and ended up moving to washington dc uh because the capital in washington reminded her of the capital in havana cuba which was built after the the capital here in washington my dad uh, went from Spain to Harlem, the 1960s Harlem, which is not the, the, 19, the, ni- the 2018 Harlem with multi-million dollar condominiums. Right. Um, and he started working as a busboy. Uh, they dated in high school in Cuba and then uh, continued their relationship when they got to the States. And I was born right outside Washington, D.C., where I grew up. Um, and I grew up uh, very modestly. Um, there was no going out. There was n- no, no birthday parties at restaurants. There was uh, growing up uh, relatively poor. Uh, but my mom and dad instilled in me the, the importance and value of education and basically the mantra of work hard. And when you think you've worked hard, work harder. And when you think you've worked too much, work more. Right. Because right now there's someone else working harder right now than you are. So that's how I grew up. Give the siblings? Um, older brother. He's an aerospace engineer. Oh, really? Uh, uh, he's the smarter <laughs> the smarter of the, of the, of the siblings because he's, he's a scientist, a uh, different kind of scientist. Uh, so he's four years older, and he's based out of Florida, uh, travels around the world doing uh, defense rockets. I don't ever know what he's doing or where he is. Um, uh, and so I went to the University of Maryland as an undergrad. I uh, started out as a radio, television, film major. I actually had my own disc jockey show. Wow. Uh, I actually <laughs> played records back then when the records were cool. And uh, now they're cool again. Um, like 33 and Yeah, third, yeah, and you cool know, answers. side A, side B, yeah, right. the, 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 crackle, the crackle when the needle hits, it's the, that's the best sound <laughs> in the world, actually. Um, and then uh, during my so- uh, sm- spring semester my first year, I, I needed to take an elective class. And so at that time, we weren't on computers doing drop-ad, we were waiting in line, and when I got to the drop-ad booth, there was one class left that fit my time schedule, which was Tuesdays and Thursdays after 10 o'clock in the morning. And it was an intro to criminal justice class uh, with Dr. Lori Brooks and that class changed my entire life. Wait, this is by accident. You got I into this? Complete, I, compl- I had no interest in criminal justice at all. It had it was open at the time I wanted to take the class. <laughs> so so this is why I shouldn't even be here. Right, imagine right. if I if another class was open or something else, I, I, my entire life changed literally because of that class and that instructor changed my entire life of my interest in what became my pursuit and study.
0: Does that instructor realize the She absolutely knows. She does. Yeah, Yeah.
1: I I still am very very much in touch with her. Went to my wedding. I communicate with her every few months. Um, You know, I owe so much to not just her passion for instilling, her instilling her passion in me for the topic. And also my mentor who um, I started working as an undergrad, interviewing jurors who were on capital trials after the they, gave the, the death penalty verdict in North Baltimore. Uh, and we were talking about aggravating circumstances and mitigating circumstances, and that fueled my interest in research. And then uh, he suggested, you know, wh- why don't you go to grad school? And I'm like, well, what's grad school? You know, <laughs> no one <laughs> in my family went to, you know, right, right. college. <laughs> so, um, you know, he said, this is what grad school is. And I'm like, okay, so I go home and tell my parents I'm going to grad school. They're like, well, what's grad school and who's paying? You know, there are people <laughs> listening right now that, that hate you, right? Yeah, no, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, you, you never... You can only plan your life so much. You have to allow for serendipity. And, you know, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We're guaranteed right now. Right. We have, so we have to have a plan, but we also have to allow ourselves to be somewhat Gumby-like. Because right. um, you don't know what life life in the future and brings. And we
0: joke about it. You still had to do a lot of hard work. Absolutely. Yeah, it it's a like lot a, of hard work. work.
1: easy to you. It's a lot of hard work. Right. Um, but, you know, hard work really pays off. There are no shortcuts in life. There's, as you know, in, in medicine, and there are no shortcuts to doing the right thing um and when you do the right thing in the right way um you do get the rewards that you deserve
0: now you mentioned gumby so i'm guessing you're a child of the 80s right then i thought of eddie murphy oh yes you know gumby on snl so Uh, i'm sure there's a few out there that can relate delirious that that pop Um, that pop reference
1: and his outfit on delirious was orange or red in that one it was raw and then delirious delirious and raw right yeah (laughs) I remember watching that when my parents were
0: out and I exactly. found out, like, you, you did what? Yeah. yeah so <laughs> so you had this il- illustrious career in criminology that stemmed from this interaction with this one professor, which I, I think it's important to let people know that any one interaction can change the trajectory of someone's life.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's a really great point, Brian. I mean, not only in your case, you know, as, uh, in medicine, you really are literally changing people's lives. Uh, In in our world, it's interesting, in a different kind of way, where I have students who I've mentored now, who are now uh, tenure professors around the world, who come to me and and send me an email. I had one student, literally two days ago, who moved to California for a brand new job, called and said, I now realize all the work and time you put into me. And I said, said, that is exactly why we do what we do, is is seeing students graduate and then they, in turn, mentor their own students, passing that around there's, it, is, it is not, you can't pay me enough money to understand the feeling that that entails in me. It's, it's what you get up in the morning for, is helping people.
0: Right. So, this uh, ranking as the number one criminologist, what is that? How do you become that? What does that mean?
1: Uh, is that's that lot, impressive to me. It's hard work and great colleagues. Right. Um, so basically, it's a function of um, number of articles published in the elite journals. So the, the you know in your world JAMA would be a good example of that. So in my world, we have our two, three, four, five journals that are like that. And, and so, so this it's thing, pub- sorry,
0: JAMA is the Journal of the American Medical Association.
1: Uh, and so it's publishing a lot. In those top journals, repeatedly, and as you know, you publish in, in the top journals is very very hard. Rejection rates are very very high, uh, and so it's a lot of uh, a lot of publishing in those and high quality papers um, that get um, a lot of attention, not just into the scholarly community, but also in in the, in the public. And one of the important things I think uh, we do we need to be doing as scientists is engaging in the public a lot more because the public is not gonna read any journal article. They're, first of all, they're gonna to go to the library, they're not gonna download a PDF file, um, but they're gonna to need to us to translate to them all of the equations and the stuff we do in a way that they can understand in an objective fashion to allow them to then take away the message they think is correct or not correct in the science.
0: And that's why I'm a huge fan of your work because I think that we in academia do that poorly absolutely and i came across your work i read the dallas morning news and i was seeing your your opinion pieces and i found that you that you're using science to talk about these socially social divisive issues mm-hmm. and then translating that to the public and that is a skill and i think is necessary
1: yeah I, that's a great compliment and and i share it with you because i've read yours as well and uh, you make me want to be a better writer when i read yours um I think well, that...
0: thank you. Uh, Don't talk about me anymore, okay? All right. It's my
1: show, <laughs> so we're not going to talk about me at all today. Okay. Uh, thank, you. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, it's writing those things is, has made me translate my work and, and communicate better. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to take an issue that people have very strong emotional opinions about. And our job as scientists is not to engage in, well, my opinion's right or your emotion's right. It's, what does the science say? And at least when you are making your opinions and you are basing them on some set of facts, you know, opinion without fact is not a good thing. Um, fact underlies opinions is much better and much more objective. Now, we got to also understand, as you know, that the science is only as good as it is right now. The science will be better 10 years from now, not just in medicine, but in dental medicine and in scholarly research, whatever discipline one is interested in. Um, But I think the honest is really on us if we want to help people. And this is not just, it's not about changing minds. That's not what we're in the business about doing. We're in the business of saying, here's the science. Here's what the science says. And we just hope that people take that science and then do good with it. We don't want people to do bad with it.
0: Now, did you do this from the very beginning or when did you make that transition?
1: Um, I only made that transition probably 15 years into my career because I needed to have the street cred the, the 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 background and, and the knowledge and and the 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 CV the curriculum vitae and the resume that supports me being able to have that voice so now i feel very comfortable doing media and i also know what media are looking for right so you know we know when we get reporter calls the story's written we just got to figure out well, they want a quote we just got to figure out how do we make sure that our quote is used correctly in the name of science so, I didn't do this at the beginning. I would never have done this at the beginning because I needed to have confidence in myself. And that came a lot from being very successful in my career. But even now, I don't, I don't do everything. So, I, I only do the ones where I know I, can, I have something useful to say. I'm not going to say something just to say something. There are a lot of people who do that, and never, there's never good that comes out of that. People love the headlines, they love the spotlight, but that's not what we should be doing this.
0: Right. So, tell me about the, the first time you did this. Did you think back, I'm just going to 20, 30 years ago, that I want to get the cred and then do this? Or you were just going along your academic track yeah. and then something
1: happened? A- absolutely. What, what, what came about was I was going, the usual writing articles, going to conferences, teaching my classes, mentoring my PhD students, like every other academic does. And then crime became a very big issue in the media um, with cell phones and video clips. And then uh, a lot of the stuff that was going on with, with crime drops you know, of the 1990s and what was happening. And then everybody was saying there's, their specific pet theory, and people were saying stuff so, that just is ludicrous. Right. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And then I, I, I thought very carefully to myself because a lot of our colleagues will say, well, you're just chasing the spotlight. And I'm like, well, okay, that's your opinion. I really don't care about that. Um, but if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this the right way. So it took me a while to get to that point, uh, to feel confident, but I absolutely believe, and this is not just true in criminology, it's true in economics or in public health. I mean, it's true in all of those disciplines where people are actually making decisions.
0: So I wanna talk about that in more detail when we come back from the breaks. How you take these, take the science with these socially divisive issues and translate it so that that is accessible to the public. That was a tongue twister there. And you've written about the NFL, uh, standing for the anthem policy. You've written about police use of um, body cameras, uh, immigrant crime. There's so much we can unpack today, Alex. We're gonna touch upon a few of those after we come back from the break. Uh, So thank you for tuning in. Vicaro, he is a professor of criminology at UT University of Texas in Dallas. And also joining us back today is Lauren Elaine Brown. You may remember from our last show, she works with the ACLU and she's doing some work on police oversight here in Dallas. And this is serendipitous because we may have some overlapping topics to discuss, so we'll get multiple opinions. So Dr. Pacquero, as I said, I've been following your your work and I've been impressed by how you take use science to address social issues and then take that and translate it so, that it is accessible and understandable to uh, the layperson. And you've picked several topics. I'm just gonna throw out a few here, and we'll, we'll talk about those one at a time. So, let's first start with the, um, the NFL policy regarding kneeling for the national anthem. Tell us about the science behind that and what you found and how you presented that to the public.
1: Yeah, when, when you know, the interesting thing about the NFL anthem protest is that's not a new protest. Uh, the protests happened with Ali. It happened at the in the uh, Summer Olympic Games in in Mexico City. This is not a new thing. It's a new visible thing because of the NFL. And a second part of that is is Kaepernick actually was kneeling well prior to that big event. He was kneeling in preseason games, and no one ever noticed. It actually just happened to be caught on tape and video, and that then it became a big a big issue. So when it became uh, more and more apparent that players were joining Colin on on his uh, his protesting, um, and then the president came out with his particular viewpoint on the topic. We thought, let's grab a real good sample right now and ask people the following questions. Uh, do you oppose or do you support either kneeling, sitting, or raising your fist in the air when the anthem's played? So three separate questions. And then we asked them if they thought uh, the NFL teams should punish the players and or if the NFL um, itself should punish the players. What we found was that in the aggregate, people were more likely, about 50 to 70%, not very supportive of the protests, but it varied about the type of protests. Raising the fist in the air was much more acceptable than sitting. But the the, the bottom line is when we looked at uh, whites and non-whites separately, every single non-white respondent, which was virtually every single African-American in our study, all of them supported the protests and the whites didn't. And then when you looked at punishment of the players, no African-American wanted to have the players punished either by the owners or the NFL, but whites were more likely to be okay with that. So we saw this real strong division across race about what the anthem protests were about. So based on your
0: research, it didn't matter about the type of protest, standing, kneeling, fisting in the air, but as far as punishment, that broke down along racial lines.
1: Yeah. Well, and also the type, uh, um, the, 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 um, the anthem protest was also different across race. So African-Americans were more likely to support all kinds of protests, whereas whites were less likely to support all kinds of protests. But the, the punishment was every single African-American reported, no, I don't think the players should be punished by either the league or the teams. That's it's just Wow. That's pretty fascinating. So that became a
0: paper? It
1: became a, a, a peer-reviewed uh, article peer-reviewed and article. got a little bit of press and we wrote an opinion piece on it for the Dallas Morning News that got reprinted in lots of other places. Right.
0: So t- tell me about that process really quick, I shouldn't say really however long it takes actually to go from your peer-reviewed article yeah. that you presented a major... Um, national conference, sure. and then you make it into a opinion piece that's 700 words for the public to digest.
1: Yeah, and, and that's that's the hard part of it is you're trying to take you know 30 pages of, of a word file, and everybody knows what word right? word perfect for people who are a little bit I older. We're, I <laughs> learned word perfect on a Tandy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> word perfect 5.1. Um, so you know you're taking 30 pages and you're distilling it to 650 or 70, 700 words. And the way I do that in my head is, I'm talking to my uncle. What, and my uncle says, what did you do, and why did you do it, and what did you find, and why does it matter? So those are the four pillars in my head that I think around. But so you- what did what did you do? What, what did you do, why did you do it, what did you find, why does it matter? Okay. And from that, I then say, okay, let me just have a conversation without regression equations and all these kinds of things that we do in statistics, and just have a conversation. But to have that conversation, that first paragraph of an opinion piece, you have to hook the reader. Because if, if you don't have me a paragraph one, I'm moving on to the next one. Like I will say, every time you do that with the first sentence. You got like When it. I
0: read every time that first sentence, I'm like, okay, let's go. Let's go.
1: So today's DMN had three great opinions on the police issue here in Dallas. Um, they were from different points of view, one from a national um, writer, one from a, a police officer in Arlington, and then one from uh, King here in Dallas. They were from three different perspectives on the same issue, and all of them just drew drew you in right away. Right, and and I went and that's and I, I love reading opinion pieces. I don't care who writes them or what they're about. I just I I, I find ways of how did they hook the reader in, um, and so I, that is how I distilled 30 pages of a manuscript into 700 words. But it's for different audiences, but different constituents, right? So the academic stuff is for my academic people and and the um, opinion pieces are for the public to, to, to take science and social science and just have conversations about it. So when I actually, last week, this is great, I had a, a person, a, a woman, email me and said, your opinion piece was what we talked about at dinner tonight. Right. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool.
0: And that's how you know you're having an impact. That's, you know,
1: great, you know what, that's just, that's just real instantaneous, um, neat stuff when you get that, that people are actually having a conversation about what you wrote. Sneak. So you mentioned a few uh, pieces
0: about the recent shooting here in Dallas. Uh, We have Lauren Elaine Brown here from the ACLU who's been doing some work with with Dallas as far as police oversight. And on our last show, we talked about uh, the shooting of Mr. John and the impact it's having on the community and the role of police oversight. So you wrote some things about um, body cams and waiting to see the videos until they yeah, Later. so
1: body cams and you know, I also wrote something uh, on the one year anniversary of the ambush in Dallas about use of force and um, not just by police but also against police. Right. Um, there are multiple sides of the, to this issue and also the type of police, um, type of force people, police use and the body cam debate is a, is a real big one and we'll touch on the, the tragedy of last week in a second but I think the body cam thing is an important issue that people don't think very carefully about all that it entails. So it entails buying the equipment. It entails making sure the equipment is functioning. It entails what happens if the officer shows up to a scene and the people don't want to be videotaped. So, so people don't think about that. What happens when they're being videotaped? People right. oftentimes are videotaped when they're not really in their best frame of mind. Right. Who's who's going to pay for the storage? How long do you store it? You know, the DPD in the city doesn't have instantaneous amount of money to put it on a cloud. So who upkeep's that? How long do they keep it there? Uh, when there is a public records request, what gets Dumped from the data, everything, only parts of it. Who makes those decisions? Um, and we got to think about th- this is not going to be a solve for the issues. It's it's a tool, just like citizen review boards are. These are all tools that we want to try and use to to have better relationships between police and the community, and to have trust and accountability. I think that everybody wants those things. I think the key issue is how we get those things. And a lot of times, people on, on all sides of the issue want answers right now. We can't have answers right now, and this is not about punting because we don't want to deal with a difficult issue. When I got calls last week about the tragic shooting, everybody want to know, well, why this happened. I'm like, we don't know what happened yet. We we have we don't know anything. We know I know what you know, which was right. on TV and on the newspaper that next morning. That's it. And as as the investigation goes on, information comes out. And I think sometimes we have to pause for cause. And sometimes science takes some time and, and investigations take time. But I think you know body cams and police uh, accountability boards, all of these things are good. The Dallas Police Department, for example, compared to other cities around the country, um, have been very open about their data. For, for citizens, researchers, they have da- their data portal online for everybody to see. Not a lot of police departments do that. And right. Chief Brown did that towards the end of his tenure. And he took a lot of flack for doing that because when you put that stuff out there, it's now out there for everybody to to, to sometimes use against you. So, you know, police departments, some are doing good things, some are catching up. Um, I think um, we just need to make sure they're doing as much as they possibly can and make sure that that the community sees that they can't solve everything immediately. Right. You know, I mean, they have a lot, they have a lot of pressures. I guess,
0: full disclosure for our listeners, I serve as the chairman of the City of Dallas Citizens' Police Review Board. So all, all, all these topics here are very important to me right now and especially now, there's a lot going on uh, with uh, with regards regard to board reform. But we have uh, Lorna Lane Brown here in the studio. I want to give her a chance to, did uh, she want to interject on anything we, we, we just heard? And I will, I will admit that when I read the article, I was actually kind of conflicted. I was very well written, but I was conflicted about what I, what I was reading, which is, that's what I want, I, that's what I want, something to challenge my own biases about this. Mm-hmm. But i give Lauren and Lane a chance to.
2: Yeah, um, well no, so thank you for inviting me back to the conversation, um, and thank you for just sharing your background and all the work and research that you've done, it's very impressive um, to hear um, the journey that you've taken. Um, I think, I mean, as far as, police force and body cams and the solutions that we're trying, well, the tools, I like the term tools that you use, the tools that we're using to find a sustainable solution to ending police brutality um, and bettering community relationships and community policing, I think we have to think about where is the citizens or where is the community voice in that? Because traditionally, um, police departments and police associations have had the voice and had the power, um, not just financially, but even when it comes to getting the media, even when it comes to getting the media attention, and we see that um, in the current case that's going on, um, that now the district attorney has had.
0: In that case is?
2: Um, well, Mr. Mr. John. Okay, Mr. John's case. Um, we just, in the community, we just call him Bo, because um, again, um, so as just a So just to frame for
0: the, for the listener, Mr. John was, in his own apartment and he was shot and killed by a DPD officer last week he was coming home off duty and that is that's dominating the news cycle here in Dallas. I just want to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about.
2: Yes and you know everyone's saying it's confusing and we don't know why it happened and that is true we do need things do take time Um, finding out truth does take time Um, but we have to look at the way that that truth is being found out um, and being searched for and if the Um, way that justice is being served is equal and fair, and is it in a way that um, all people would want to see it done, Um, not just have it be one-sided and only support and influence one demographic or one special interest group.
0: Right, and that's where I think uh, uh, science can help guide some of these answers, and I've been going in and out of all these different worlds here trying to do my part to enhance and make the process transparent and account uh, accountability and uh, you know enhance public trust and science can help in, in that regard to to maximize that but there's so many move, so many moving parts and Absolutely. it's not going to happen uh, overnight so uh, I appreciate you both being here to, to talk
1: about that do you have any comment about what she just said in regards to um, I, I think that uh, there's several things I think um, First of all, I I think it's important, um, the work that she does with the ACLU and trying to bridge these gaps between agencies and the community. Um, I think that some police departments are doing really good in that regard. Other police departments need to do better in that regard. Um, And I also think in, in this particular case, you have the Texas Rangers doing an investigation, which I think was really good that Chief Hall did this. She immediately said, I'm not going to investigate this. Well, they could do their own internal one, but this has to be done by someone else. So I thought that was an excellent first step. Um, and then the DA has to wait. And then so the DA has to wait for that right. data. And then the DA then came out and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. So you have different agencies and a mayor and all these people who are trying to solve the same problem. And it, you know, it's just, it's just all of this stuff is, just, and they're waiting for the investigation. So then they have to do forensics, they have to do blood tests, they, do, you know, when they have to do the, the, the blood and alcohol test for the officer, then they have to um, do the autopsy of the victim. All, those tests don't take five minutes. Right. So we got to figure out the facts to understand what kinds of charges happen and all that kind of stuff. So I think um, all of us can use some patience and all of us want the same answers. All of us in this room want the same answers. Um, we just have to find a way to understand the process is not always gonna be um, necessarily quick or as quick as some people may want them. Like I may want them as a scientist right away. And uh, community members want, might want it right away too. Or they might, they might want a different kind of outcome than I do. There's different constituents who want different things. And a pleasing all those people, never gonna happen.
0: So I wanted to touch on immigration, but this actually yes. segues into another piece you wrote about Uh, the stress of police work and the science you did on that. So when we come back from the break, we'll talk about that. If we have some time, we'll get into the uh, immigration issue as well. I mean, God, the time is flying by. Well, I hope you all stick with us. Uh, You're listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine on I Am Royalty Radio. We're here with Dr. Alex Piccaro from UT Dallas and Lauren Elaine Brown from the ACLU. We'll take a short break and we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams. We are here with Dr. Alex Pacquero from UT Dallas. He's a criminologist. And we also have Lauren Elaine Brown, who is working for the ACLU. So Dr. Pacquero, we've been talking about your work, your scientific work, and translating that into opinion pieces that are accessible to the public. Um, We've been talking about police. Let's talk about. You recently wrote an article that talked about the stress of police work, and you're, you're using science to define what that means and how they're effective in their job. Can you t- tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, yeah,
1: So we, uh, my my colleagues and I, including my wife, uh, Dr. Nicole Picaro, have long been interested in in police stress. Um, so think about our work. You know, you ha- as a, as a as a doctor, you have your stresses at work, and you have your stresses at home. And I have my stresses at work and at home, and so does so does Lauren. And so for police officers they have to turn them those things off instantaneously but they see things that i never see and so one of the things we're trying to understand is what leads to burnout what leads to depression and what leads to suicide because we know the rates of, of of police officers firefighters and and doctors are high on some of those things compared to people in the general population So burnout
0: depression and suicide correct okay
1: and so what we did is we administered a survey to uh, uh various agencies throughout the state of texas to understand what kinds of organizational stresses and what kinds of individual stresses at the workplace relate to those outcomes of depression, suicide, and burnout. so organizational stresses, right? Oh, I got a boss telling me this. I gotta write this report. I gotta go make rounds. I gotta go do this. So those are things that are endemic to the job. And then there are things that the individual has in the job. I witness a kid get shot. I walked in on a sexual assault scene. So those are sort of things that most people don't see on a, di- on a given day. And so we were trying to understand how those stressors affect those um, psychosocial uh, mental health outcomes for officers. And we found that in fact, that more and more of the stressors as they pile up, so it's not necessarily one stressor, it's this, and then this, and then this, and then this, It's like building a snow, snow person. You start with a very small snowball. And then you keep packing snow on it and, and then it gets to be a big snow person. And that's the same kind of thing that officers deal with, especially when they, when they have a long shifts or they're dealing with high crime parts of the city where they are they're just inundated with this stuff and then they have to turn it off immediately. It's, it's, like, it's like a running back who gets tackled and everybody's flying all over the field and then instantaneously they have to stop all the aggression and start all over again. So for officers is how do they manage that? How do they cope with that? So there are lots of things, including the city of Dallas has a, um, DPD is working with the Center for Brain Health at uh, University of Texas at Dallas on this SMART training to have them understand these things that happen to them and how to cope with them, you know, taking breaks mentally or physically while on the job, uh, which they can't always do uh, as much as, you know, you and I can go outside and, and, and take a walk around the building for 10 minutes. Um, So that's what our research showed, and when we wrote the opinion piece after we wrote the empirical study, it was just to give people a sense of, hey look, this population has these issues, um, and there are training mechanisms that are available for these people, and the city of Dallas, the DPD, is actually doing these kinds of things in the city. So we thought that was a really good thing for people to see. So based on your research, can you make any connection between that
0: and their treatment of suspects?
1: Uh, in that study, we, 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 we were not able to do that. We did not look at that in that study. But that is something that we are doing currently. Okay. And with, you,
0: any suggestions? You see, you see that it's programs to mitigate the, the stressors. Is that something that police departments across the country are looking at?
1: Or yes. Is this? Oh, yeah. So a lot of police departments around the country are, are uh, implementing these signs of training. There are different kinds of training. Some are mental health focused. Some are more cognitive behavioral focused. Some are more breathing techniques. Um, and so there are a lot of these different programs, but the, the key point is regardless of the, the heterogeneity of the programs, um, all of them recognize that this is an issue. And you know, it's, it's also about taking the stigma away of mental health, especially with police officers. It's a, it's a different kind of population, a different kind of mindset. And so you're trying to say, hey, it, it's okay. We, we understand that and it, we can help with that. And so just getting to that point, I think is a, is a win. Well, let's pivot
0: for a moment, because we've talked about your, what you've written for the Dallas Morning News, but you have articles across a large number of national uh, publications, mm-hmm. USA Today. LA Time, Times. Yeah. There's something you wrote in the Des Moines Register recently about the Molly Tibbetts yeah. murder and this conflation of immigrants and increased crime. What did you find there?
1: Yeah, so I, I've been doing research on immigration and crime for, for about a dozen years, and uh, the the, the the empirical research on this could not be clear. Uh, immigration is not related to more crime. Can you Pe- say that again, period. please? Say that I- Immigration again. is not related to more crime, period. And it doesn't matter if it's done with um, aggregate level uh, studies of states and, and cities, whether it's done in individual level studies of self-reports, of when you ask people about what they're offending, or whether you look at arrest records, or any of that stuff. It doesn't matter if I'm doing it, or if 10 colleagues around the country are doing it. It doesn't matter if it was done this year, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. The results are absolutely one in the same. There is no relationship between immigration and crime. Science going back decades. Decades. Okay. Different people, different places of the country, different parts of the world all show the same thing. We call that reliability in, okay. in the science. <laughs> and, repeatability. <laughs> and repeatability. And repeatability. And that's really hard to do right. uh, for those uh, the scientists who are in the audience. So we, we've been doing a, a program of research and when the, when the Molly Tibbetts tragedy happened in Iowa. Um, you know, this is a, a woman who was out for a run. Um, my, my wife's a marathoner, so I, I immediately think about uh, right. about that case because my wife goes out on four hour runs for fun. Uh, so I see her <laughs> when she leaves and we see her when she comes back. Um, and what was really interesting about um, the outcome of the tragedy was the way her dad dealt with this. When certain people started to use the tragedy about um, vilifying a particular segment of the population, I'll leave it at that. Um, her dad said that's not what Molly was about and do not use my daughter's death. This is a, a, a father who just lost their child and other people are using that death to support a cause that has no basis in science uh, and, I, and actually in my mind is not what America is about. When you think about what, what this country is really about right. and how it was the idea of this country. Uh, and so he came out with this piece, and then Donald Trump Jr. came out with this piece about the Democrats using this, that and the other. And so I said, you know what, I'm not going to write a piece about either of these, but I'm going to write a piece about opinions and facts about immigration and crime. And so I wrote it for the Des Moines Register, because that's where those two um, uh, came out. Um, and um, it, was, it, was, um, it was good, it's been well received, fortunately.
0: So. This, so you said LA Times, what else other publications? That LA you-
1: Times, Kansas City Star, so I wrote one on Michael Vick. So we've done actually some empirical research on Michael Vick, which for those audience, people in the audience who don't know remember the case, Michael Vick was a professional athlete, uh, played for the Atlanta Falcons and the New York Jets, um, Philadelphia Eagles, and he uh, was uh, busted for involvement in a dogfighting ring in his hometown of Virginia Beach, Newport News, Virginia. And, where my folks live. Uh, it's a great part of the country, great beaches, and he was a phenomenal football player. And, and, you know, he did his time. He did his 18 months in federal prison, and then it took him a long time to get back into the NFL. So what, after his career ended, uh, Andy Reid went to coach uh, the, the Kansas City Chiefs about two years ago. And when uh, Andy Reid hired Mike Vick as an unpaid assistant coach, there were people who canceled their season tickets to Kansas City Chiefs because they didn't want Michael Vick or what Michael Vick looked like or what he did as part of the team. And so we wrote an op-ed for the Kansas City Star that really talked about, look, when can people come back and have gainful employment after they've already been punished and done their time? And who's to say what kinds of jobs someone can do? And who's to say, you know, how long they can do it? And so it was not a piece about defending Michael Vick. It was much more general about every year, 600,000 people leave prison. Are we not gonna let 600,000 people work? What are we gonna do? Or and, vote. <laughs> or vote, and, and, and in many states makes it really hard for them to get back their voting privileges. And so it was more about how do we get people who are reentering society, because we all benefit when they don't commit more crime, all of us do. So we all have the same outcome that we want here. We don't want them committing more crime. So we wrote a piece about how is it that people can be, have believe. That, they, that an individual who's done his or her time can't still work in an employment capacity. So the Kansas City Star published that one. Right. So,
0: let's talk about, I don't know where, where to go right now. There's so much that we kind of got pivoted from where I wanted to go with, with today, and I see, I see the clock running out here, <laughs> so I'm getting all, all antsy. <laughs> let's talk about one more um, piece that you wrote, and this had to do with um, Senator Cornyn Oh, the
1: First Step Act. Yes. First Chance Act. Yes. So the idea of, um, you know, criminal justice reform is much easier at the local and state than it is at the federal level, like anything else probably in, in America. Education is a good, good analogy to that. Uh, and the senator put together an act that really talked about um, all the good that happened in Texas. I mean, the, the, so for someone who grew up on the East Coast, there was always this image of Texas, um, especially when you grew up between the D.C. and the Boston Quarter. Um, And in Texas, actually in the 1990s, they were one of the states that was leading the change in criminal justice reform. The state of Texas closed prisons and they took that money and then invested that into drug and treatment programs. And Texas has seen reductions in crime and and still have low crime rates. So they were ahead of the curve compared to every other state, but nobody would believe it was the state of Texas doing this. They would have expected it was, oh, it was Massachusetts or Connecticut or New York or something like that. But Texas was the first one. Uh, they call it the, the Texas miracle. Uh, and so Cornyn had talked a lot about uh, that work and said, this is something that we should be doing at the federal level with respect to putting more money into treatment, um, non-incarcerating low-level drug offenders, all of the, a variety of different things in this one act. And so we took that as not necessarily supporting him, I mean, I could care less which senator or governor wrote this thing, but it was about, this is evidence-based. The science supports this, and and it's gonna be less money for you to pay for this in the long run, and it does the right thing. So I called it in the article, um, the bill is smart on crime, but smarter on people, which is the title of a book I'm working on.
0: Yeah, I read that, that just grabbed my attention, because there's, there's so many elements about that that did not make sense, did not compute but that was a, an impressive uh, way to attack criminal justice reform. So Dr. Piccaro, thank you for being with us today, but for our audience that may want to catch up with you somewhere later, like what are your social media tags that you want to? Uh,
1: my social media tag is uh, Dr. Alex Picaro, so it's capital D, small r, capital A, L, E, X, capital P, I, Q, U, E, R, O, and if you go to utdallas.edu and just search on my name or just Google me.
0: So the first thing is Twitter.
1: Twitter, yeah, yeah. Uh, or you can Google me and you'll see my presentations at, in the U.S. Senate and different yeah, things That's place. what you,
0: yeah. If you Google them, that's the easiest way to find them. He's gonna be, the be top there. the first what ten pages on Google. I'll be, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. Well, thank you for being here, Lauren Elaine Brown. Appreciate you coming here again. Yes. Uh, pre- it, uh, where, thank you for where, having me. Where can we find you again? You,
2: uh, um. So, IG at the at sign Vibe Connoisseur. The yes. Vibe Connoisseur. Um, That's Instagram? Yep, that's Instagram, or Facebook, just letter L, letter E, and then space B, like a bumblebee. Um, Or my professional work email, lebrown at ACLUTX.org.
0: So thank you for listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams, and you can just go to brianwilliamsmd.com. You can find all my social media tags there. Uh, get updates on speaking and upcoming radio shows, and these listeners subscribe to the newsletter, right and I will come to you once or twice a month in your inbox and save you the trouble of having to Google having news me. Grace Balance and Medicine plays on I Am Realty Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays, 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Central. Mr. Ty Ford, thank you for running the board today. Ty is in the studio, he's a station manager, and he has a show himself on Tuesdays. Ty and the 6th, 8th to 10th so Go to imultradio.org, you're listening to us, you know where to find us, right? Tell your friends and family at imltradio.com. Download the app check us out. We have music, talk shows, radio shows, entertainment, news, all of everything that you need. Again, Grace Bonds and Medicine. Jesus and Thursdays at 3 p.m. Central. Thank you for listening. Send me your info. I will make a show for you that is educational and, and right to this time. So send me your feedback. Thank you. We'll see you